0: welcome you again into this space. If you're new in this room, I want you to know that all the new people typically show up early and then they sit there and wait on someone to talk to them. And earlier I was talking to someone, first-time guests, and I was looking around saying, hey, everyone in this room, it's their first time here, okay? Just, just know that. So if you're new, um, our people are friendly. They know, they know better than to leave you alone. And if you're familiar here, own the space around you and say hello to the people around you. Um, that's part of what it means to be citizens of this congregation. I also I want to especially welcome uh, Bellhaven's basketball team that's here. Um, we got people from Bellhaven, MC. There are all kind of college students in the room, but the entire team is like taking up the front row. So if you can't see over their heads... Uh, <laughs> That's the reason, okay? Um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 is where we're starting in just a moment. So if you would go ahead and turn there. Um, we've been in Philippians now for 13 weeks. This is the 13th week where we can walk in through this letter from Paul to an actual church in Philippi, ancient Rome. Uh, and today we're going to pick up this, this discourse, this instruction that he's giving to them um, in this letter from chapter 3. Now, he's just said right before this uh, that he's not perfect, okay? But he's pressing on. He's pushing forward. He's striving towards the high call of Jesus Christ. And last week, we concluded with verse 17. Today, we're going to pick up in verse 17 where he says, imitate me. Let's read this together, believing that these are the very words of God for us today. Brothers, Euodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that, that this passage, this instruction, these warnings and reminders would fall on our hearts that it would nourish those who are seeking to follow you, that it would correct those that are inching away from you. Maybe there's people here today that you could transform from enemies into citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that through the proclamation of your word, your Holy Spirit could do what you alone could do, that you would transform us, remake us, conform us to your image, Lord. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you for a moment just to think about your address. Everybody knows it. Even the youngest kid, most likely, who's in this room knows your address. Group of numbers, a name of a street or an apartment complex. Everybody knows this combination of letters and numbers that represents where you live. Present tense. And I would imagine that most of you who are in this room live within the context of somewhere around this city or in this state with a particular city and a particular zip code that represents where you drove from to get to this place today. And I would also assume that the majority of you in this room are most likely citizens of the United States, okay? I'm not gonna assume that about everyone. There's some people who maybe that might not be true of. But wherever you're a citizen from, there are specific privileges Specific responsibilities, specific, specific Sorry, uh, protections and provisions that come from that citizenship. Wherever you come from, you know that place well. It represents your home. And from, for some of you, that address represents some kind of temporary stop on the long list of places you're going to live before you find your eternal home. Some of you may be living in a place where you hope the funeral director will come and pick up your body and take you to it. But I want you to imagine that that address somehow would have been an ancient Philippi, a colony of Rome, made up of, of thousands of Roman citizens, many of whom who had fought in a military to take this city and to colonize it for the sake of Rome. That's the context that Paul is writing to. A very specific group of citizens in a specific city, and they knew what it meant to belong to that citizenship. Being a Roman citizen got you incredible privileges. People paid attention to it. It cost something to be a Roman citizen. There's this moment just to illustrate this before we get into the meat of this text in Acts chapter 22, okay? I want you to imagine Paul, who's currently writing from prison, being stretched out, about to be whipped. And right before they're, they're getting the whip out, cleaning it up, about to, to tear into his back, he says, hey, uh, uh, are you guys aware that I'm a Roman citizen? Acts 22 says this, Paul says to the centurion who's standing by, is it lawful for for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, they could not treat a Roman citizen poorly, okay? It was against their laws. They could be uh, not just criticized, but but punished for treating a Roman citizen poorly. It held great value. So he goes back and tells the tribune and says, hey, did you know this guy is a Roman citizen? He comes to Paul and says, hey, uh, it took me a lot of money. To get the citizenship that you're flouting. Acts 22 says, Those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. He had an incredible privilege with being born a citizen of Rome, and that privilege would have been understood by the people in this city. Great privileges, protections, provisions that came from being a citizen of this town. It cost a great amount of money, or you were born there. Either way, it meant something. They withdraw immediately from this this claim of the citizenship. So imagine with me being a citizen of Rome, living in Philippi, and someone showing up and reading this letter aloud and saying, hey, you who belong to the people of God, are citizens of heaven. Anywhere the name of Jesus was taking root and a Christian culture was, was beginning to form around the people of God, it was a threat to the culture around it because the highest allegiance was to Jesus. So people hearing this, imagining what citizenship meant, Um, would have heard this as a great threat to the society around it. In the middle of this city was a a place where Caesar could be worshipped, a temple where they would have worshipped the highest regard to Caesar. And here, Jesus being worshipped among this group of people would have been audacious. Obedience to Christ, belonging to Christ, it couldn't be an addition to their other allegiances. Christ was all in all. He was the highest, above, eternal to all of the other temporary allegiances that would have been known in the city. So belonging to the kingdom of God, it changed everything. Paul here, continuing to give encouragement to this church to endure, to persevere, is going to say in this, in this setting, you need to find what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And he's going to paint some pictures. First, look for an example of what it means to be citizens. Know that there's enemies of the citizenship, and then he's going to describe what it means to be citizens there. First, let's look at this this verse 17. Imitate me. Join in imitating me. Look out for examples. Now, Paul has just said in the previous passage, he's not perfect, but he's pressing on. And he's saying to this group of people, you guys can follow after me. This is not the only time he says this. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. It sounds audacious to a modern audience for someone to say, hey, follow me. 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's saying in this passage, one could interpret it hey, join in with me as we're imitators together. He has just said before this have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus, that's yours. Now, if Jesus gathered a group of young men around him and said, follow me everywhere, do the things that I do, learn the things that I'm teaching, it would just go to reason that the people who are followers of Jesus would have a similar pattern of apprenticeship. There's people joining around a rabbi, listening to him teach, and then following him around so that they could learn. What does it mean to, to be followers of the Christ? And Paul is speaking that into this church. Hey, look for people who are examples of this kind of citizenship. Look around you for the people who seem to be walking closely with Jesus, who are anchoring their souls in the eternal. They're backing their investments into things that can't be seen, but they're investing in the kind of conversations, the kind of realities that would cost them something. Now, the example before this is having the mind of Christ, counting everything else as rubbish compared to knowing Christ, trying to take hold of this marvelous thing that has grasped onto Paul. That's how he describes it. That's what his process is like. I'm trying to lay hold of the thing that's taken hold of me. Um, And here, Paul's saying, I want you to look for people who are examples of that kind of discipleship. One of my mom's favorite verses, especially when I was a teenager, is this. You probably have heard it. Maybe your mother spoke this over you. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Paul's saying, be careful who you're following. Be careful who you surround yourself with, the voices that you listen to, because there's some that are going to lift your attention and your gaze and your practice towards Jesus. And right there in the mix of it, there's also people who are enemies of the cross. Before I get there, I just want you to know that today there are people that you constantly have access to. Like, there's, there's no shortage of podcasts and video preachers and teachers and TikTok influencers that are trying to lead you in some direction. But the pattern of discipleship is to get in proximity with people who love Jesus, who are trying to follow him, imitating Christ, and they're saying, hey, imitate me as I seek. I'm not perfect. We're walking in the ways of Jesus. And one of my prayers for us as a group of people is that we'd be surrounding ourselves with the kind of people who bring, they elevate the conversation towards Jesus. He's not just saying this because they need to be reminded. There's also a danger. He's saying, Follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ, because there are people among you. Be careful. Find people who are worthy of imitation. Surround yourself with those kind of people that are moving in the same direction as Christ. And here's the complicated part. Even in this early church, in the context of the church, there's some people who are exemplary. There's worthy of being imitated. And there's other people who are not worthy of being imitated. And guess what? They're also saying, follow me follow me. In fact, Philippi would have been on a a travel route between major cities. And so there's constantly itinerant preachers and people coming through there saying, hey, let me give you a word from God. And it it was complex because in reality, they weren't actually interested in following Jesus. They weren't advocates for the cross. They were actually enemies of the cross. And uh, I would just say that even today, there's people among us that one day will be sorted out. And we should not be unmoved by this. Paul, in fact, as he's mentioning that these people exist in the context of the church, he's saying it with tears. He's grieving that there's people alongside authentic, exemplary uh, discipleship who are walking out their lives as enemies of the cross. And it, w- it wasn't like obvious, okay? There were signs, but there were signs that he was saying, you're gonna have to look out for these kind of signs. Look at verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you and now even tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's something about the shame of the cross, particularly the reality that Christ would have suffered in shame that some people did not want their own lives to resemble Now, Paul just said, if you want to come after Christ, you're going to have the same mind of Christ. It's going to look like not putting yourself first, not being conceited, not seeking your own interests first. That's what it looks like to resemble Christ. He laid down his life. He set aside his own own glory in order that he might fulfill what had been prophesied about him, right? In chapter two that we looked at for four weeks. There's people who want the benefit of the cross without any kind of resemblance of the lifestyle of the cross. And that brought Paul to tears thinking about it. One of the reasons that it would move him to tears is because he could see the conclusion of their life was going to end in destruction. He's saying like, there's going to be real consequences for them. Their lives are going to lead to destruction. And this isn't the only time he talks about there being punishment for those who reject the cross of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul describes the punishment for those who are enemies of the kingdom as an eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. You can look it up later, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And Paul took no delight in this. He was moved by it. He wasn't just threatening, hanging like, if you're an enemy, your end is destruction. He's saying, like, that that is moving him to grief and tears. And then he gives us these three descriptions of what these enemies look like. And before I hold up these descriptions, I just want to be careful because in a room like this, most of us are going, I'm not an enemy of the cross, right? That's not me. I'm here because I love Jesus and I'm singing the songs. I'm just glad to be in the company of God's people. But I think when, when this letter was read aloud to the people, they were going, hey, like, which one of us is this describing? And there's ways in which our meager, uh, feeble flesh sometimes still resembles this. We need to be careful that we hear it not as those who are thinking about those other people who are enemies. But the people who looked ourselves in the mirror this morning and put both legs into the pair of pants they were wearing, including myself. First description was their appetites. Their appetites were primarily about the here and now. It says their God is their belly. It wasn't just a physical appetite. There was there was definitely a physical appetite but he's not saying, hey, these guys are just an example of overeating. He's saying, whatever it is that their appetites and their glands desired, they were just going after it. There's this picture uh, of these kind of people in Romans 16, 18. For such persons don't serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I think he's talking about that. But the other thing is, there's places in the scriptures where it says this this whole like desire for our ability, bellies to be filled resembles sexual immorality. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, it's talking about Esau. You guys remember the story of Esau who sold his birthright, all of his inheritance to have a bowl of soup? Why? Because he was just hungry for it in the moment. He's wiping his face as he walks away, and he's just given up like all of his future. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews describes it that see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, there's no particular thing that he's defining here as their sin, okay? He's just saying there are people who are enemies of the cross who do not resemble Christ whose God is their appetite. Whatever it is that they want, So there's a warning here for those who are actually in the congregation who weren't enemies, but citizens of the cross, citizens of heaven who are are holding this up and saying, okay, like what is the regular appetites that I'm cultivating? What are the appetites that I'm feeding? What is it that I want that would not please God? Is there any way that this could be an indicator, a light on the dashboard that something's off? Like something about this appetite isn't in alignment with God himself. You know, one of the disciplines that regularly trains our appetites and makes them know that they're not king is just fasting. Just saying, I'm going to take a break from this. I'm going to limit what I put into my body, what I uh, give as a satisfaction to whatever appetite it is. I'm going to fast from this just to let myself know this isn't king not just from food, but there's other things that you could fast from and just say, I'm going to put this away from me, but it's grabbing at my attention in a way that doesn't belong there. It's it's disordered. Second description of these group of enemies is this. They glory in their shame. Glory just means they were delighting in it. They were delighting in things that should have disturbed them. Uh, they were flipping. They weren't just flipping about their sin, they were flaunting their sin. They were saying, Hey, I'm proud of this. Like, I, I am doing this, and who's going to judge me? Only God can judge me. You ever seen someone with that tattoo, and you're going, He actually can. Like, that's true. He will. He's not the only one, but that's a true statement. And again, we don't know what the specifics are. We don't know exactly what it is that they're glorying in, but there's something that they're picking up. It's regularly something that should have been put aside, and they're going, Yeah, I do that. They're flaunting it. Satisfying these temporary appetites for temporary things instead of eternal things, flaunting things that should have been uh, a shame. Third description, their mind is on earthly things. Their mindset is on things that are temporary. Now, before this, in chapter two, it says he wants the people in Philippi to have a certain kind of mindset. He regularly picks up this, this term, what is in your mind? What's your mind set on? Most likely, uh, at this conclusion of the last two things that he's just described, their mindset was on earthly things like, where am I gonna get my next meal? How am I gonna satisfy what I desire? Their desires were king and appetites were king. And they were glorying things, delighting in things that should have been not delighted in. Colossians written at a very similar time, very similar place Paul is writing it. And he says it in this way, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And he says, you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who's our life, appears, then you'll appear with him in glory. And then he describes in in verse five and six what this earthly things are. What does it mean to have our mind set on earthly things? He's saying, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Again, there's destruction at the end of this. If you only give yourself to what you desire, if you only give yourself to what the earth is offering, there's a way in which it will bring about God's judgment. And then in Colossians, he goes on to say this in verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. There's a way in which the people who are all hearing this, there should be some reminiscence of us going, yeah, I can relate to that. I can relate to my appetites being king. I can relate to pursuing things that were temporary instead of things that are eternal. Their stomachs, their minds, they were setting them on things that wouldn't satisfy temporary things. Now, this particular group of people, the reason it was so dangerous is because they believed that they could be both citizens of the kingdom of heaven and participate and enjoy things that were citizens of their temporary city. Sinful things, that is. For those that belong to Christ, he gives us himself, and there's ways that he gives us to, that he frees us from, where our primary citizenship is going to be opposed to the temporary citizenship that's around us, okay? Unlike Jesus... The citizens maybe in this town or those that are enemies to the cross, their pleasure is in the here and now, their end is destruction. Where Jesus chose destruction as his end in the temporary so that he would have glory in the eternal. Unlike Jesus, they set aside the cross, who set aside the cross and became a servant. These people were looking to be served rather than to serve. Unlike Jesus, who for the glory set before him endured the shame of the cross, so that we could glory in what would be gained through the cross, they're glorying in their shame. Unlike Jesus, who set his face like flint, set towards the cross, coming resurrection, he had no place to lay his head. They're seeking things that are in the here and now. And here's the interesting part. Not everyone is an enemy of the cross, but every person hearing this has at one time been an enemy of the cross. Here's what I mean. Everybody hearing this, some of them were actually citizens who were looking around going, like, I need to follow the right people. But every person in the room, every person who heard this letter read aloud, knew what it meant to be opposed to Christ, to realize that the cross is a treasure, to be rebellious and opposed to him, and then become a citizen. Now, every person in this room too, you weren't born a citizen. You might've been born a citizen of the United States or whatever country you were born in, but you're not born a citizen of heaven. There's a way in which he has to uh, naturalize us into his kingdom. Romans 5.10 says it this way, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The mindset of those Um, who are no longer enemies of the cross are hearing this going like, that was me. That was my story. I once lived for my appetite. I once lived for the things that were temporary. And now I've been transformed. And there's people who are still enemies of the cross who might be here among us or who are there hearing that who are going, wait, wait a minute. Like he's describing me. I've been living for whatever my belly demands I've been living in whatever direction is temporary in the here and now that would give me immediate satisfaction rather than eternal joy. And if that's true, I want you to know that the same means by which anyone is transformed from an enemy to a friend is still at work today calling people to himself. So then he goes on to to describe citizens. But our, in contrast to these enemies of the cross, our citizenship is in heaven. Now he's gonna describe a few things here. Um, Citizenship must mean something for us who belong to heaven. It's gotta mean something in the here and now too. So many times we think of our citizenship in heaven as this future tense thing, okay? Where one day I'm suffering now, but one day I'm gonna be delivered from all of this. And that is true. It is a part of the truth. Paul's saying, hey, we belong somewhere where we're longing and awaiting a Savior who's coming, but there's a present tense reality to what he's declaring. He's saying, we're right now citizens of heaven who live in this particular city and place. Present tense. This is an outpost a model colony of the kingdom that is coming from God, a present tense place where Jesus is king. So any place where the church is, where Jesus is worshiped, where he is king, that's a place where his kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. And I say that present tense, on earth right now as it is and will be in heaven. Because God is going to make earth the dwelling place. So for us, when we think about the church, this is like this model place where Jesus is king, where his glory is being demonstrated, his character is being manifested in the people. We're here, yes, waiting, but also realizing that right now we belong to this other place. There's a reason to rejoice in the here and now because Christ has set us free from all these things that would have attached us to a temporary citizenship. So as Paul's writing this from a prison cell, saying, hey, rejoice, no matter what it costs you, rejoice. Urging them to imitate him as an example of rejoicing and suffering, a reminder that our citizenship is higher and greater, that we long for it in a way that's eternal. Eternal. Rather than having temporary appetites satisfied and cultivated by the immediate, we long for the eternal. We have a different kind and set of desires. We have a new set of delights where they're saying, hey, I'm glorying in these shameful things. We glory in things that are a benefit to us and to the kingdom. We have a new list of appetites, a new set of delights. We're glorying in these. And from it, we're eagerly waiting One of our reading, maybe last week actually, in Luke chapter 12, it describes this place where men are waiting on the landowner to come, waiting on their master to get home from a wedding feast so they could open the door and say, hey, come on in. The house is ready for you. We're eagerly awaiting The realization of a Savior who's already done transforming work in our hearts, but we want to see Him face to face. And we're dressed for action, waiting for Him to show up as Savior and Lord. Two things. First, as Savior. The one who's ransomed us from slavery to our appetites. We're longing for Him to show up. One who's Lord over all, who has the power to subject all things to Himself, who's holding this very place and the cells in our body together by the word of His power. He's Lord over all. And one day, our lowly, meager bodies are going to be physically transformed to a new glorious body. Now, it will be a glorious body that also is like very real, like a physical body. It's going to be like floating around. There's a way in which all the limitations that you feel, the appetites and the fleshly desires that you have will be transformed. They'll be rightly aligned with his design. Amazing, right? It's amazing. It's a good promise. So he says, look, I love you. You're my glory, my crown. Now stand firm in this reality. And then he gets this very practical implication, okay? Now, uh, we don't have anybody named Euodia and Sintiki. But if you can imagine receiving this letter and it being read aloud, and in front of the congregation, they call you by name. Paul's writing a letter and he's saying, I really want you to stop disagreeing with each other. Very practical, okay? The model of our citizenship being eternal is that there's like practical ways that it calls us to partner with one another, to belong to one another, to agree in the Lord. It really does have to be one of the most awkward moments in the New Testament, I would say. He very specifically says, I entreat you, Uodia, you I entreat you, Sintiki, agree in the Lord. Stop bickering with each other, okay? You got some people that are examples, you got some people that are enemies, and some people that are frenemies. You don't know that you're actually playing on the same team. There's people right now that you probably have written off because you're like, you know, I can't believe they did that. In a great pastoral effort, he calls them by name and says, I want you to agree. Both of you, your names are written in the book of life. Now, here and today, like when you have a disagreement, you're like, okay, I'll just go find another church where that person that that isn't there. That wasn't like one of the privileges of Philippi. Like you got one church planted. They're all gathering together together. You got these two women that have long term been laboring side by side, and for whatever reason, they cannot agree. I say, look, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. And he's telling Epaphroditus, "Help these women, help them out, usher them towards reconciliation. They're legitimately saved. They're not enemies." They're not being exemplary right now. (laughs) I just want to say this. There's sometimes when we wrongfully label people enemies of the cross when actually they just are people that rub us the wrong way. Overcome these differences. Agree in the Lord. You're you're long-term partners. Now I'm closing with this. I got this question for us. Are you a citizen? First question of all of this is, where is your citizenship? Like, what does it look like? Is it the eternal citizenship of heaven? Where your life is beginning to resemble the kingdom that is coming and has come. If that's the case, if you're a citizen of heaven, then find people that are examples, people that are moving towards Christ, moving in the same direction. You surround yourself with people that are always bringing the conversation lower or you listen to podcasts that are always dragging your mind through the dirt. Are there ways in which we could lift our attention to those around us and see that there's people, real people who are examples and people that we could imitate? Now, Paul felt very confident saying this. and he's not saying I'm perfect. He's saying, yeah, join in imitating Christ with me. Come alongside me. We're gonna follow Jesus together. We need people who can be exemplary among us. Some of you are hesitant about that and you're like the oldest people in the room. Our church has grown. It's grown younger. That means there's more people that look up to you, okay? Find examples of this kind of citizenship. Also, be aware that there are some people who have no interest in the cross of Christ whose God is their bellies, they're really, they are glorying in things that should be uh, shameful. They're concerned with temporary arrangements instead of eternal hungers and desires. And for everyone in this room that, that was an enemy who is now a citizen, remember your story. Remember that all of us were outside of the the benefit of the cross and for those of you who held up this evaluation I think there are people in the room today that if you would look at yourself honestly you'd say you know what my God really is my appetite it's whatever it is that will soothe me whatever desires I have they're not eternal desires they're just temporary satisfactions and if that's you I really believe God wants to take people who are enemies and make them friends Everybody in the room once walked that way. That's our story. Ephesians 2 describes it that way. It says, look, all of you were alienated. Every single one of you. Every one of us once lived as enemies of the the cross or children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We were all upset either by what it it, uh, confirmed about our righteousness, that it wasn't good enough, or by what it confronted, that our desires would lead us to destruction. The, the cross confronts those things in us. All of us once lived by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, of the mind. We're nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, who was rich in mercy, took enemies like all of you and then made you citizens of his kingdom. He doesn't just he, he doesn't take people that are like, kind of like, yeah. Maybe I'll check out God. Maybe I'll like warm up to Christian things. He's taking people that are enemies of his cross and making them members of his family. Some of you need that kind of but God moment where Who's rich in mercy and great in his love for you and while you were even sinners and dead in your trespasses, he can still make you alive together with him and save you by his grace. Some are no longer enemies, some of you still are. Those of you that are citizens, I want to remind you that your citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't mean that you can't live fully here on earth. It means that as you live here on earth, you're an outpost of his kingdom coming. We're colonizing Jackson as a place that resembles heaven. No longer strangers, no longer aliens, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. Says it this way. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is God's word for us. Now, before we take communion today, I just want to ask you, like, hey, are there practical implications of this citizenship? In Philippi, it meant that there were two women that needed to, like, stop being argumentative, okay? There's practical ways that we might live this out. Very practical. Some of which is, is just us saying, hey, like, I need someone to imitate Christ with me. Don't let me walk this road alone. Maybe some of you need to find someone to walk with you or to just mentor you. Some of you have filled out cards and said, I really want that in my life. Some practical things for us. Find some examples. Watch out for your enemies. And remind your own heart that your citizenship isn't the here and now. It's ultimately in heaven from which you await a Savior who is Lord, who has everything and all of creation subject to him by his power. Let's pray to that. Lord, thank you for your word today. I pray that we would live it and receive it. For those that are far from you, I pray that you'd draw them near. You'd bring them into your kingdom by your power. Maybe there's some today that that are just reminded that they've bowed to their senses over and over have given their appetites and desires and longing some primary place. I pray that you'd grant to us repentance today, that we'd be renewed by this reminder that you suffered to bring aliens in from the outside and make us your friend. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.